The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, grab yourself a McTwist, Coke, and a side of fries, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 527 with guest Joel Semeniak, recorded live Monday, February 8, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who thinks Nike's new motto should be, just do me, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl here. Richard there. And uh, we're here for the next hour for your edutainment. There you go. What's up, Richard? Ah, uh, You know what? By the time this show is published, the Olympics will be over. I should be grumpy by then, but now that we're recording it before the Olympics, I'm in a great mood. So how were how were the Olympics for you, Richard? They were amazing, man. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Yeah, did you have a good barbecue? Oh, more than one, I'm sure. I got a new keyboard for those who like music and synthesizers and stuff. I got myself a Nord Electro 3. Nice. And it rocks. That's all I got to say. Let's get into Better Know Framework. All right. Maybe someday we'll change the crazy better no framework music to use the nord keyboard instead yeah. or maybe i'll just add some overdubs it'll be, <laughs> it'll be nordified it'll be nordified but it's a great keyboard and a great company i highly recommend it so today's better no framework is uh also in the system.windows you know then the presentation framework dll uh -huh. system.windows.data and it is list collection view the list oh. collection view class Represents a collection view for collections that implement iList. When you bind to a data collection, you may want to sort, filter, or group the data. To do that, use collection views. You can think of a collection view as the layer on top of the binding source collection that allows you to navigate and display the source collection based on sort, filter, and group queries, all without having to manipulate the underlying source collection itself. Okay. So, you know, the typical application of this is select star from customers. <laughs> you make then... me cry every time you say that. I just wanted you to know. All right, it's a joke. Don't, <laughs> don't do that. Right. Just say no. That is an anti-pattern. Friends ever... don't let friends write select statements without where clauses. That's right. <laughs> but uh, so there you go. So if you want a collection view to further filter your already filtered list that came from some data source. There you go. So, Richard, tell me about Energize IT. So, Energize IT is a program sponsored by Microsoft Canada. They've got a new program going called Energize IT, Anything is Possible. And it's a Canadian program aimed at folks working on the Microsoft-based platform. So, that's not just IT pros and developers and architects, but also enthusiasts. And they're running a series of activities, events, online sites, and so forth to help you understand how to build apps and uh, generally solve problems using Studio 2010. Even Windows Azure is part of this and Office 2010. Cool. So if you want to learn more about that, and they're one of the sponsors of today's show, uh, go to www.energizeit.ca. 
Hey, hey, Richard, are we going to Norway again this year? We are going to Norway, my friend. We're back for the Norwegian Developers Conference. Boy, we had a is... lot of fun last year. Sure was. That's where we did that crazy live show with Scott and, <laughs> and Phil uh, Hack. Yeah. Phil Hack. Yeah. That was not Phil's finest moments, I recall. Oh, it was fun. <laughs> so this year, the NDC is in Oslo. It's uh, June 16th to 18th. Mm-hmm. They've actually got an early bird special on right now until March 1st. You can save yourself some money if you register right away. And it's a big discount, so it's yeah. well worth going. But even more fun is they're running a .NET Rocks contest. They are. So we're going to be there, so you can come and see us. But if you go to ndc2010.no slash DNR, they've got a little page there where you have to answer a question about getting to NDC. Yeah. And they're going to put up different questions every few weeks, and they're running that site. So you go there and and register with them and answer the question. And every few weeks, we're going to come back and remind you about this contest and send folks mugs. So Absolutely. Guys the answer correct. Just like a classic .NET Rocks contest. And, That's right. And if you can't remember the URL, don't worry. Just go to .netrocks.com, and we have a banner ad there, so you can click on it. Right. Yeah, it's right on there. And by the end of May, one of the folks that's answered the question correctly is going to get a full ride to NDC. So that's hotel, airfare, and admission covered. And if you've already signed up, we'll reimburse you what you spent. And it doesn't matter where you're from in the world, right? Yeah. If you want to come, and believe me, you want to come to this conference. Yeah, you want to go to Norway. Unbelievable raft of speakers. Guys like Rob Connery, Scott Hanselman, Uncle Bob will be there again. It's a really amazing group. And And you haven't lived until you've seen Scott Hanselman dressed up as a Viking. (laughs) I'm just saying. Plus, the conference is in June. So literally, in Oslo, it almost doesn't get dark at all. Oh, yeah. It's right? awesome. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I got up to look outside. The sky was still sort of dusky. It's way far north. At it's midnight, a... it's dusk. Yeah, it's still it's light. Constant it's really dusk. a lot of fun to go there. So enter the contest. Get yourself a free ride to the show. And uh, we'll be there. We'll talk to you. It'll be good fun. And bring your sleep shade. <laughs> Richard, who's yakking at us? Uh, I got a quick email that is very relevant considering the topic today. Uh, and it's from Chuck Pepper, and we're, Chuck will send you a mug for this. Yep. Listen to the show on TFS Nuts and Bolts. Hmm. That was uh, show number 513 on uh, January 5th. Michael Learned. Nuts and Bolts show. That's right. I've been using TFS for a year, and it's kludgy and complicated. As your guest stated, you have to configure TFS, SharePoint, and Report Server, and you have to use the command line a lot, and you need to scour the internet for tools. I was really disappointed when he said the admin interface was virtually unchanged in 2010. I understand that there is a single user slash workstation version of TFS in 2010, and you don't need the report server or SharePoint. It would be nice to have a show on whether it is a suitable replacement for VSS or Subversion, neither of which requires a team of professionals to manage. Chuck? Okay, I feel your pain, man. And so here's the show you just asked for. Yeah, we'll see what Joel has to say about that. And speaking of Team Foundation Services and all things Team System, our uh, guest today is Joel Semeniuk. He's the founder of Imaginet Resources Corporation, a Canadian-based Microsoft Gold partner. He's also a Microsoft Regional Director, has a degree from uh, University of Manitoba in computer science. And uh, that is just the tip of the iceberg of his his bio, which you can read at .netrocks.com. Welcome back, Joel. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for coming on back. No worries. A lot of fun. Was it really minus 30 Celsius in that picture? Yeah, it is really minus 30 plus Celsius in that, in that picture. It was, uh, we were asked to kind of give a a snapshot of what it's like to kind of work in our, in our territory. And it just happened to be one of the coldest days of the year. So I figured, you know, what better shot than actually trying to go outside, get a little bit of frostbite, take a picture and run back inside before my nose falls off. Hmm. So did you damage your computer in the process? Uh, surprisingly not. The sucker runs pretty good, pretty good when, it's, uh, <laughs> when it's cold like that. Yeah, you know, we always hear about computers not working well in heat, you know, because they obviously get hot. But how cold does it have to be before a laptop will stop working? Wow, that's a great question. Not that cold, actually. LCDs fail below freezing. Really? Yeah. See, I knew Richard would have an answer to that. So if you didn't have an LCD and if it was just, you know, connected wirelessly, you're, you're good then, right? 
Well, and it, it, the nice thing is if the LCD is already on, there's some heat in it from the uh, the backlighting, so it'll it'll keep it from freezing. But the only reason I know this stuff is I did a bunch of implementations around exactly this problem, and we mm. froze a lot of LCDs. Wow. And then you turn them on when they were too cold, and they would crack as you warmed up. That's awesome. Yeah, it sucked to be us that day. We ruined several thousand dollars worth of LCDs figuring out what the temperature limits were. <laughs> so, Joel, we're talking about team system for small businesses. Awesome. Yeah. So, Are we allowed to call a team system anymore? You're not allowed to call a team system, no. All right. Well, at least we know. <laughs> at least people know what we're talking about when we say team system. Well, that just goes to show you that there was value in that brand. Yeah. So what are they calling the 2010 product now? Well, there's a couple of different pieces of that 2010 product. There is, um, um, you know, we have different flavors of Visual Studio from professional to premium to ultimate. The ultimate uh, and the and the premium versions have flavors of um, the tools that we saw in previous versions. So what we had... Um, a couple of different SKUs before we had, uh, you know, team this uh, Visual Studio for team architects and uh, and developers and testers and DBAs. Um, those tool pieces have been kind of rolled up, kind of like a Russian doll model, if you will, um, under the different versions of Visual Studio. So we, you know, when we start with Visual Studio Professional, it really doesn't come with any any of the team tools. But as you work up the SKU all the way up to Team Ultimate, uh, or sorry, Visual Studio Ultimate, we have all of the you know, the testing tools, the developer uh, tools, the load test tools, the test script management, and so forth. And we also have the back-end component, which is Team Foundation Server. So right. um, you know, we looked at that whole thing before as kind of being team system, you know, the, the client-side tools and the server-side tools. Now we're kind of splitting them out very specifically into two different components. And so one component is TFS, is it the server-side yeah. stuff? Server, all the server side stuff is, is Team Foundation Server, uh, and they've really kind of uh, changed, you know, the licensing model of that particular product. Before, you had to uh, there was a you know, quite a bit of money for just purchasing the the found, you know, the server license, and then you also needed to have client access licenses to access it. Right. Uh, but with uh, 2010, they've changed that a little bit, so that it's uh, you know the the server itself is about you know 500 bucks retail. Um, and free if you have an MSDN license. Hmm. So, I mean, and getting back to to the email we read at the beginning of the show, which I'm sure you heard, this is getting away from needing SharePoint and Report Server and all those different things. Well, if you if you have them, you'll be able to use them. Um, okay. You know, there's there you you will have the ability with the new version of Team System to run on you know to install the product without having SharePoint installed. And I know that that has caused a lot of people a lot of pain, especially when they have really complicated, um, you know, Microsoft Office, you know, the Moss platform. Um, right. But if you just wanted to use TFS by itself and really kind of focus in on version control, um, build management, uh, work management, you can. Uh, and there's a couple of different setup models now that, you know, make that a little bit easier for you. So... For example, I can run uh, the tool in, a, in an express setup right now that's really just next, 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 enter. You know, if you can type setup, you too can be a you know, team system installation expert. Um, and that will just kind of install the bare bones for you. And if you want to have it extended into SharePoint, you can later configure it to do so. Oh, it's even more impressive. It's one thing to get the install and not have SharePoint and not barf. It's another thing to say later on, hey, I brought SharePoint in now. Can you hook up to it? Yeah, exactly. And you can do that. I mean, it's not going to be, uh, you know, a, a, a click checkbox. I now have SharePoint go nuts. There's a few extra steps involved with that. But essentially, it really removes a lot of the barriers for getting going with the product. Um, you know, one of the biggest complaints that we've had with customers, they're exactly what we've heard in the email. It's kind of like, you know what? I just want that 30-minute experience. I want to be able to download this thing install it, make use of it, learn how to understand it without necessarily having to understand the intricacies of all of my infrastructure required to support this. I mean, um, I remember when I first started um, doing installs for Team System, you kind of allocated 14 hours, maybe a bit more, because wow. you, you, you have so many things that you have to, to put together in order for it to all work. Um, you know, and eventually after 2008 came out, you know, our close friend at Chen Tremblay created a whole bunch of install scripts that we just lived and died by because it did so much for you. Uh, it made sure that, you know, 
um, all those questions were answered as you're going through, made sure that all the pieces were installed in the right order, and it really helped during the installation process. But now, you know, those barriers have pretty much been removed. And the, I think the real issue here, and I think uh, the email hinted at this, is, dude, I was only after source control, right? There's yeah. all this project management stuff, and, and so, like, I just, give me a place to put my code. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's our experience that most customers, most shops, especially smaller shops, uh, are really looking for it for a, VS, a VSS replacement uh, to begin with. They're like, you know what? VSS is giving me some hassle. I've lost some code. You know, it doesn't really work right. with uh, you know, with larger size teams. I need something better. Uh, Microsoft is touting this better thing, uh, but yet they've been feeling a lot of pain. So with 2010, so you know, you can just download it and use it for for version control. Bam. And then when you want to start using it for your automated builds, wham, that's there too. Uh, and as you slowly start kind of getting more mature, having more needs for the product, you can kind of expand out as it integrates into reporting and SharePoint and even Moss. Now, we mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but it might be a good idea to reiterate. What version do I need to get in order to get source control? What version? Of Studio. Of Studio. Oh, well, so it's all kind of bundled up in Team Foundation Server. So there's no different version of Team Foundation Server. What there is is three different installation flavors, I guess you can say. Um, one is the Express setup, which, like I said, just kind of installs the bare bones, and that goes all the way up to an advanced where you can configure everything that you need to, to do to configure it in, uh, into MOS environments and reporting services and SharePoint and so forth. So there's really not different versions of, of Team Foundation Server. There's just different installation options. Or different versions of Studio. So so TFS Express will work with Studio Express? Uh, well, TFS, uh, there is no TFS Express. Express is really just a setup option. So it's just TFS with a simplified installation pattern. Okay. Um, and that will work with um, Professional and Up. Professional and Up. But really what you have to do is install, um, and that's kind of misleading, because you really have to install the Team Foundation client, I guess, on your computer. That's also called Team Explorer that allows you to kind of gain access from the client side to, um, to the server. Um, so in reality, um, you, you, you can actually use source control with everything, anything you want. Mm. Um, so, for example, there's power tools that you can get that actually build the you know, version control right into your Explorer. So you can actually, from your Explorer, navigate the team system and see it as file folders and check things out and check things back in. From right your from Windows Explorer or from your Visual Studio Explorer? No, from your Windows Explorer. Yeah. So this reminds me of Tortoise SVN yeah, Tortoise now, SVN, right? It's a version. Exactly. But those, by the way, are part of power tools that come kind of out out of band with the normal release cycle of the product. Hmm. So you do have to go get them. Yeah, and 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 they're not necessarily uh, always released at the same cycle as um, as the rest of the product line. They're kind of things that didn't really get to make it into the product that they're releasing kind of out of out of stream, but add you know quite a bit of value to. Uh, to the overall uh, package, uh, I mean, one of uh, one of my all-time favorite tools is the Process Template Editor, which um, we wrote and licensed to, to Microsoft. is packaged as part of the um, Power Tools. So, if you want to go and modify your your Process Templates that define, you know, the type of work items that you're going to be gathering, uh, the types of reports that you're going to be generating, even the structure of your SharePoint site. Um, that tool for customizing your process templates is packaged along with the power tools. And it's for free. They don't, they don't charge anything for that. But this also brings up the idea. And I've, I used to do this with SVN where we're checking in stuff that isn't just source code, right? Documentation, anything can be checked in and have a history of it and be part of a build. Yeah. And you know, it becomes quite important. Um, especially when, you know, when when we ship software, we, we typically think, oh, that's just code. But in reality, we all know that, that it's not. There's help files, there's configuration files, there's installation routines, there's there's documents, there's even videos that kind of go along or you might want to label along with your different builds um, and to keep them all in sync. So it's really important that, you know, you have a, a more common versioning system so that you can get all the related stuff together or not. You're not having to piece all the stuff around. Um and, and, and really, you can use the platform for that. I mean, we even have, um, with the purchase of Team Prize, the ability to support, you know, Java environments now, too. So it's really not necessarily limiting to just the Microsoft client. It really kind of opens it up for a generic versioning, you know, storage mechanism. 
And I can almost see in a small business model, people using that for everything. Like that's just a good practice to have a history, to have a check-in process, to know who's got copies of documents. You get more sophisticated stuff in big enterprises, but for a little org, you know, half a dozen people kind of thing, that could do the whole thing for them. Well, you know, when I think about little orgs, I think about them having some really interesting characteristics. One, they tend to have uh, really generic roles in their organizations. It's very rare that I see people who specialize in things in little orgs. You know, the CEO sweeps the floor and he also, you know, does annual budgets. And the same thing with devs on teams. It's very rare that, you know, oh, I'm the build master. On a yeah. small team, you're, you're the build master, you're the coder, you're the tester, you're the designer, you know, you're the requirements gatherer, you know, build software, right? Um, and when we work with customers, it's interesting how the small teams are really struggling for efficiencies. You know, every time that they have to work um, and, and, you know, maintain something that isn't giving them direct value, that takes away from their overall velocity. I'll give you an example. Years ago before Team System, um, we uh, at Imagine It uh, had kind of a mismatch of all these different tools from cruise, cruise control to, to NAT to, to NDOC to NUnit to, you know, piecing it all together. And we kind of spent weeks and weeks integrating all those tools together so that when we had our automated build, things would magically happen. And we spent so much time maintaining that, right? And then every time things would change, we'd have to then go back and maintain our build system and our automated deployed system. And it was really very a touchy thing. And, you know, it very rarely worked all the time. Um, and then we had to become not only experts in our dev environment that we're producing for our customers, but we had to be experts actually in the tools and how they integrated with one another. So we had to become integration specialists in those tools. And all the cycles that we spent putting into the maintenance of that environment takes away from code that I could be writing for my customer, right? Features, quality, things that are taking away from the value that we're producing for them. So I right. think that even for small teams, I mean, being very lean, being very um, conscious of waste is really important. And I think that's why we saw a lot of the adoption happening with Team System around the small to medium-sized business, at least we did in our organization, because they were looking for things like, we're tired of fixing our VSS, right? We're tired of, of you know, repairing that database. Or we're tired of, um, you know, the way that it was doing sharing and checkout. Uh, we need something better because we're spending too much time on things that we shouldn't have to do. So I know that there's I know that there's a lot of people out there listening saying, yeah, this is a great pitch for Team System, but how can you, you know, what if I want to use the free tools if I just want, you know, if I just want um, some some source control, why not just download Subversion? You know, what do you what do you get out of using source control with Team Foundation System that you don't get with Subversion? What's the argument there? You know, it's it's really tough to to compare the tools individually. Um, I, I don't think organizations are going to have clear value at, at looking at, oh, what are the differences in version control or what are the differences in automated build? I think the only way that you can approach that from a value perspective is, is, is the way that they've integrated with one another. So if you really, if, if you only care about version control, if you don't really care about work tracking, automated build, gathering metrics or anything like that, then, you know, you're going to be comparing um, team systems version control to something that's completely free. Mm -hmm. That's a really tough argument to make. Uh, even though, I mean, team system is also, is, I'll call it virtually free. When, you know, when it's at a $500 mark, mm -hmm. it's virtually free, right? Yeah. And when you buy it retail, you do get five CALs that come with it. So you can have a team of five that don't have to have a client access license, which costs about 500 bucks. Um, using this this tool for version control. Um, so it works quite nice. The moment that you need to expand beyond that five, you're going to need to buy additional count, right? So the barrier to entry has gone down considerably. But I, again, I'd stress that the value really isn't the individual tools, but it's integration of the tools. That really kind of, uh, you know, makes it, makes it magic and come together. So you start out with source control, and then you start getting into the project management side of things. What's the compelling part for a small business getting into that piece? Is it that sort of automatic reporting to the user that they don't have to bug you for what's the state of the project? 
Actually, you know what? We're not even seeing that. The, the migration tends to be from, from, you know, from version control to automated build, then moving its way up to work tracking. So, the, so we see a lot of customers using it for a storage mechanism and versioning, and then they go, oh, what's this, this build thing? And then all of a sudden, they can create a quick little automated build that does a compile and runs all their unit tests. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty seamless. Um, that's kind of neat. And then as they go further, they're starting using it for bug tracking. They go, hey, why don't we just stick all of our bugs in team system? And then they take it one step further. The project manager goes, you know what, guys? When you check in, you can associate your check-in with a bug. Wouldn't that be cool that we know, you know which check-in was associated with which bug? And then magically, as part of their nightly build, they get a build report, and it shows them which bugs were fixed in that build. Right. That's when they start going, ah, I get it. I didn't have to do anything to get that. Yeah, it's the, the combination of those things. Plus, now I think the new version, the, the customer can actually report bugs directly into the system. Like, they have a web client right. that doesn't cost anything. That's right. Uh, the licensing there is that you can submit and look at your own bugs for free. So you won't be able to look at anybody else's bugs. Right. Definitely submit your own bugs and through the web client if you so wish. And we've used that a few times because um, the process templates, like the bug, the work item that you look at on the screen is very customizable from a visual representation. And you can have a different schema for representing it inside of the team system client and on the web. So what you can do is you can really dumb down the bug work item and you can get them to, you know, submit a bug and up comes this nice little form that says description, right? What were you doing? And then submit, you know, a really easy way for capturing things. But on the other side, we're capturing all this other stuff, um, you know, what build it was in, um, who submitted the bug, when it was submitted. And then we can gather metrics around that, right, um, that we can trend over time. Well, then let me jump the the far end of this, which would be for me as a business owner can I assign a cost to a feature that my customer comes in and submits as a bug? Here's a new feature I need. And I can actually break that down into chunks of code and debugging and all of that sort of stuff. Well, sure, you can. Um, I mean, it provides you with those mechanisms that we can take a bug and then decompose that into smaller chunks. And each one of those chunks has a, a commitment uh, or constraints associated with it. And you can then turn those into, you know, if, for example, if you have 10 tasks and each task takes two hours, you have 20 hours of the work and every hour is 100 bucks an hour, that's what you're charging to the customer. Well, right. it's the cost to fix that bug. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have these tools. One of the things that it does miss fundamentally is budget management. There's no such thing as money inside of a team system project. And, and ironically, there's no such thing as time either, um, which is just a strange thing. Uh, One of my personal pet peeves with the project is that uh, when I assign bugs to sprints or iterations, that sprint actually doesn't, inside a team system, doesn't have a a temporal representation, doesn't have a start or end date. So you don't really keep track of hours in team system? Um, You can keep track of hours. It has a very simplistic way of having remaining work, work completed um, field. Right. Um, There are other vendors that are out there like Notion Solutions that have a team a time tracking component uh, that you can add on uh, that allows you to now track that time over, you know, for example, uh, a bug might take you 15 hours to complete, but you're going to spread that over three days. You might want to understand how many hours a day you're working on that bug. They have a component that allows you to do that. Right. But So to your point, it's tracking hours, but it's not actually tracking days. No. So it's ultimately up to, to the project manager to figure out how long did this really take uh, you know, that those kinds of things. And then you can sort of try and assign a, a, a cash value to that. Yeah, and what people end up doing is use the integration into Microsoft Project. So what you can do with um, work items is you can push them into tasks instead of Microsoft Project or Project Server. And then inside a project, they have value and cost, right? I have resources that have cost over time. And you can start tweaking some of that information inside a project as being that repository for helping you schedule that out and understanding, you know, the impact to the overall timeline and so forth. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. If you're developing a new line of business application, then you probably tried the latest Silverlight version. Now you can achieve even greater results 
by combining the functionalities of Silverlight 4 Beta with the richness of third-party controls. Our friends at Telerik are the first vendors to offer native support for Silverlight 4 Beta in their RAD Controls for Silverlight 4 CTP suite. The Telerik controls let you tap into the framework's great potential, like the native right mouse click and more. Be sure that all 38 controls benefit from the latest and greatest in Silverlight 4, so you can start building compelling applications right away. Check out the product at Telerik.com Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com Telerik. So I think we're we're still trying to address the comparison of the cost pro the cost proposition of TFS versus the value proposition or the value proposition of Team System versus the value proposition of some of this free tooling here. That yeah, I mean, I think we got to make a stronger case for that. And you know, your your answer is correct, which is you know the value of having all these things integrated to each other, uh, integrated under one roof. And and you even touched on. Uh, ways that you can link these systems together. Um, I think I think we need to hear more of that story, in in particular to the tools that people are using that are freely available. Right. Well, I mean, here's here's an example. I mean, we just finished an engagement with the customer. I'll, I'll uh, protect their names to protect them. And they they were having you know they were a fairly mature dev organization. They did a lot of work with the uh, you know integration of um, you know, SVN and Bugzilla and Cruise Control uh, and, and some additional unit testing tools. They spent a ton of time, like a bunch of time, with very high-skilled developers on integrating those tools together so that they do have the same experience that you get when you get a team system. Now, don't get me wrong, we started there too. I mean, that's, that, that's great that they even realize that these integrations are important. Many organizations don't even, don't, aren't even there yet. But it turns out that the people they used to support the integration of those tools were also their lead devs. Guess what? You want your lead devs to produce value in the software that you're producing, not having to mess around with keeping the, you know, everything kind of hooked up right. So what we've been finding is that it was a really easy cost justification for them. Now, how much time am I spending maintaining the system? Guess what? That amount of time greatly exceeds the amount of investment I'll make into my this new platform. So it worked out really well for them. Now, that being said, when you look at value, value is very subjective, right? Value, you have to look at it from a number of different dimensions. One of it is benefit. How much benefit am I going to get from this? The other one is going to be, what's the penalty of me not doing that? Can I get away with not having an integrated system? Um, you know, some organizations make that decision. They're like, you know what? We're fine having all these disconnected tools. You know, we, we don't get any benefit from it. That's fine. Uh, then the other aspect of it is is cost, um, and each organization has different weights on each of those perspectives. If you go into an organization who's clearly very cost conscious, and that really overrides all that other stuff. Well, right, their decision is quite clear. Even though Team System, you know, like I said, is five hundred bucks and comes with you know five free cows, you can get a pretty small team going pretty quickly with that particular product, right? Yeah, but SVN is free. And, and, it, and at the five cal model just isn't that tough to do it, right? And and again, if if they're not worried about the integration nature, and if they're not worried about how much time and effort it would take for them to maintain that integration with anything else, like Bugzilla, for example, um, then then they're only going to look at the licensing cost versus how much time and effort and cost it will be to maintain you know those, that environment. And there's another aspect too. Um, one of them is process improvement. Um, Small organizations usually have an eye on how can we get better. Um, when you begin any process improvement effort, you really need to have some level of metric. You need to have some level of how are we doing today um, so that you can make changes in your process and then measure it against, are we, you know, are we getting better? Um, with so many of these tools, gathering metrics is very, very time-consuming and is usually manual. Um, even with these free tools, they give you some levels of, of, of data, but if you really want an, an integrated view of the data of your project, you really have to spend a lot of time bringing it all together. And it turns out that the time that you would spend bringing that information together is quite time-consuming yeah. uh, and might impact your process improvement initiative uh, or even just you know make, make it all guesswork. 
True. Yeah, yeah. The integration angle is ultimately the the win here. That I've been I spend my five hundred dollars on TFS. I get source control and bug tracking and automated builds right. and reporting, and I can turn them on sort of one at a time as I make progress through this. Right, and I don't have to figure out, you know, four different products, just one. Right. I mean, and and you know what? There's going to be pain as soon as you open up the integration into your infrastructure. You know, we've we've had, a, you know, there's some pain points when you're going to have and a lot of organizations go, oh, SharePoint, you know, they have this, wait a second, we're not just going to let you install SharePoint willy-nilly. And we've watched, you know, SharePoint has become this, you know, in a positive way, if there's any Microsoft piece listening to me, a virus that has gone into an organization just spread like wildfires. And a virus in the sense that non-IT folks, you know, folks that have uh, more privileges than they probably should have and don't really have a plan are installing it because it gets work done. Totally. And, and we've seen this in the team system areas where our dev, you know, our dev group has installed team system and they've got, you know, 30, 40, 50 sites already because every time you create a project, you create a team site. And then all of a sudden the moth guys go, hey, what you doing over there? And they're like, nothing. And they're like, we've got SharePoint sites. And they're like, no, we don't. And they're like, yes, we, you do. And they're not on our SharePoint infrastructure. And we have governance that we're trying to put in place for our SharePoint infrastructure. And you guys are cowboys. Um, and that, and that, you know, causes them to rethink how we're going to do the SharePoint thing. How do, you know, are we going to allow Team System to have its own SharePoint? Or do we want to take advantage of Moss that has integrated search and integrated reporting and all these other fancy services that allow you to get more value out of the platform. So with 2010, there is that mindset there as well. Like you, if you just have, if you don't have SharePoint, great, go for it. You can use Team System. If you have SharePoint, you know, WSS equivalent, great, go for it. If you have Moss, fantastic, we'll make use of that. In fact, um, they've also included some additional Excel service reports that sit on top of Team System that render out that data from a, that, that you would only get in Moss even in a more rich environment um, than you would normally get in some of the reports that you get out of the box. Hey, Joel, do you see a world where we're going to end up buying this TFS stuff as a service rather than installing it ourselves? I sure hope so. TFS in the cloud? Yeah. I, I, I would love to see this turnkey that says, you know what, I just buy my dev tools, and it asks me, where, you know, where's your code, right? There it is. And off I go. The bigger complexities, of course, are when you have, um, you know, automated builds that require integration components like with BizTalk or something else. And you're also doing right. automated deploys back into your own infrastructure. I mean, that's where it starts to break down. But there, we've, we've been involved with a lot of teams who could really just use a couple of turnkey solutions. And there's a few companies that are out there that are, in fact, offering um, TFS in the cloud. Um, I haven't had any really? experience with them, uh, but there's at least two that I can uh, that I can dig up for you guys if you're interested. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but I have evaluated one of them, and it works as you might expect, right? You get uh, a server URL; it's just an internet URL. You get some credentials. You map your Team Explorer to the server URL, and off you go. Work item happy, version control happy, and provided you have a nice stable pipe to that server, you're good to go. And a bottle of scotch. Yeah. Well, like I say, you're introducing more moving parts. So, you know, that's going to be a challenge for some folks is how do we get Team Foundation Server that we don't have want to own the infrastructure. We just want it to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, interesting problem. So uh, skipping back to the beginning here, Guy, it, you you we start with source control and what about if we have an existing infrastructure running under SVN or what's the other hip new one GitHub? So you're asking if I can transfer uh, seamlessly from those infrastructures to team system. Well, I also wonder about the, you know, the incentive around doing that is I've got something up and working now. I mean, I could see us, we, somebody whips together uh, GitHub or SVN, and then comes the bug tracking request, and all of a sudden we're back to, hey, shouldn't we just do this with Team System, and 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 then it's easier. Yeah. So then again, it is about the migration problem. Well, and you know what, the migration problem is quite huge. Um, mm. There's no great tools that that move you from 
these other systems to to team system. Um, people have tried, people have failed. Uh, what we've normally seen is people taking a snapshot of their code right. um, from one system and then just reloading it into team system and moving on. That that allows them to kind of carry forward pretty quickly without having the migration hack. So easy to move the source, hard to move the rest. Yeah, for sure. The history uh, and all that other kind of goodness and, and the relationships between, you know, uh, the different pieces of code, for example. So you end up starting, you end up usually starting from scratch. And a lot of people have done a lot of manual migrations. Uh, so writing custom code to grab out history from SVN and write it back into team system. There's a couple of instances I've heard about from that, but it's quite intensive to do that. So what we do find is that if you have a large investment into an existing um, infrastructure, it's, you know what, it's a non-trivial decision to make. And people do need to have justification um, and at least some way of justifying a return on investment on on this new infrastructure. So even even though Team Systems is now 500 bucks and you get five free cals and your team is only six people and it seems to make sense, you know, what is my investment in actually migrating this code over? What are the additional risks involved? How do I, you know, am I going to blow my timelines now because I've just spent three weeks trying to migrate over my code? You know, there's there's a lot of uh, and, and what do you migrate over? Do you migrate everything over, or do you leave the old projects alone, and then you have to maintain this infrastructure that's just right. age with your old data in it, right? Yeah, and and it's not a lot of reward for migration. There's more reward to just move forward with the new system. Well, it, it there is reward if you have to discontinue the old system, right? Um, that you totally have to rip it out. Uh, we've seen that in star team environments where. They've just decided as an organization, a corporation, that they're not investing into Star Team anymore, and they're just going to move everything over into Team System. Well, the, you know, they don't own licenses for Star Team anymore. They can't go back and access that data legally, uh, so they have to migrate everything over. Um, they're old projects that are not, you know, not important anymore, or or not relevant anymore. They're trying to bring all that stuff over, and it's a pretty big endeavor. Uh, but that being said. Um, um, it's interesting. The organizations who kind of we place them in, uh, into a couple of different categories. There's a, you know, a group of organizations that are they get it right. They've been struggling with the integration of work tracking, automated builds, uh, automated deployments, um, gathering of metrics and source code. They've been wrestling with that problem for a long time, and they're they're ready to let go of their investment of the integration pieces that they worked on. And do welcome the things that you do get out of the box with with Team System, and more so with 2008. Process improvements only really going to show up once you've gone through multiple revs of an app, or even multiple apps, right? Yeah, I mean, process improvement um, can start, um, you know, at a sprint level you, you know, with your sprint retrospects, but you still want to be able to understand some data that's collected for you automatically. I mean, let's just take raw bones. If I want to understand how I can better plan my next sprint, there's a few things I need to know. How much work did we get done in this previous sprint? Um, how were the impediments impacting that work? What was my team's velocity? Stuff like that. Now, if we have a tool that just gives you that, wow, that's great. If you have to spend two, three, four hours collecting that information every sprint, well, you're taking time away from actually doing value-added work. So... You know, starting at raw bones like that, even the simple collection of data and being able to trend that over time, which is done for you in the warehouse automatically, right, right, allows you to see, oh, you know what, we are trending upward for our velocity. That means that my next sprint, looking at the trend, I could probably do 10% more story points. And so we have, you know, we're better optimized on what we can add to that sprint. And and what's the trend you're measuring here? Is this the, the rate of check-in, the amount of time per feature? What are you measuring? There's a ton of different things you can measure. Um, what people typically measure is uh, if they're using things like stories or, sorry, scenarios in an agile template, they'll put an estimate in there, and that estimate could be in something like story points. So what they'll do is they will um, do a trend of the number of story points that were done in a particular iteration. Just do a quick little sum. Uh, you, you know, Use Excel, pull the data directly from the cube, do a quick little pivot, and then just you know understand iteration by iteration how much story points my team is getting done. We can also see quite clearly how much work is being left over, and that's really important too. 
when you're trying to optimize your planning processes, you don't want to actually put too much work into uh, an iteration because it, it becomes wasteful. Right. And so if you're gathering that automatically, like, why not? A quick little refresh, uh, and you can update your Excel report so you can better understand what your team velocity is. And velocity, in this case, is ultimately the number of story points you can do in a sprint. Exactly. And are you still working in these sort of traditional measures of what's a sprint these days, six weeks? No, no. I mean, the sprint is, we try to make sure that it's never more than four weeks. Uh, Typically, it's two weeks. On highly iterative teams, it's one week. But that means shipping workable code every week. It does mean shipping workable code every week, yep. Well, let's just, you know, it's getting into the reality of the, you know, the brass tacks around this is in this process, we're putting out code that we can build and ultimately show to a customer every week. And, and, and this is where it becomes, you know, those feedback cycles become really important. So at Imagine It, we, we try to promote a one-week sprint. Um, and that's tough for a lot of people to maintain. Usually it's two weeks. But we try one week because... Um, we're pretty confident that every, you know, every single time we check in, a build is launched, our integration scripts run, our deployment scripts run, and we make sure that everything, and our test scripts run, right? So we make sure that everything is running on every check-in. So we're very, very confident that every single time we hit ver- you know, our version control, we're putting in there workable code. And when it doesn't work, we know about it really quickly. Right. What we also try to do is limit what we're doing in a sprint. So, you know, what we, in a traditional sense, you might want to do a whole bunch of things. But we do one thing at a time. We limit work and process so that what we are doing in that sprint is very focused and very deliberate. Uh, so that at the end of that sprint, we, in fact, do have shippable code. That, that's a result of, you know, many, 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 many moons of process improvement. It's not something you get with Team System, right? You're not going to, you know, as soon as you install the product, you're not going to be able to do that. However... It's really tough to do it without such a, a highly integrated, uh, non-maintainable system. So, for example, as we change our app, we don't really have to go back and change our builds that much. We just maybe add a different build type. We have different schedules. We have nightly builds and CI builds and, and review builds and, and all these other things that really make our life uh, really easy. Now, I mean, for the most part, you're, you're advocating a very agile process around TFS, have you found teams that are doing things differently but successfully with TFS? Um, well, we have uh, a few waterfall projects um, that, you know, may- maybe have started off maybe a bit more agile and then have kind of turned more waterfall just because of the nature of the engagement. And the, the real difference is, is there is doing all of your planning up front, then all of your scheduling, then all of your execution. And then what, what becomes very important after that is change. So. Um, in a, a traditional waterfall project, you're not really following the flow of value. You're really following the flow of change. And so one of the things you really want is a system that is going to allow you to report and understand the change on your system. So a team system being able to have versioning of all your work items, versioning of your source control, the ability to link the source control to work items and builds together. Right. Uh, and it also allows you to report really quickly. I mean, we have standardized status reports sometimes that we have to do the work planned, work delivered, you know, the standard, you know, status reports that you'd have to deliver um, in a much more formal engagement. And we get that data just from team systems. It's really simple to do. So how do you end up with waterfall projects? These fixed bids or something? They're fixed bids. Um, You typically do uh, an engagement up front that is gathering those requirements. Um, And you put together a fixed bid that you, you, you execute against those requirements, you manage change of those requirements through change requests. You know, so it says, oh, we bid on this. Um, that, you know, you're asking for something that we didn't bid on. Guess what? That's a change request. Um, manage all those changes. We have mechanisms inside of the tool, like team system, that manage those change requests, that allow us to those change requests to be approved and formally signed off on, you know, sign and blood type of deal. Has any waterfall project actually been completed without changing the requirements after the fact i've never heard of one <laughs> i mean never heard of a, a waterfall project without change requests and functionality yeah i mean that's the whole goal of it is to to do things one step at a time and set them in stone but it never works out that way and you know and then there's the hybrids there are certain uh certain scenarios where you know what you can't just start coding day one you, you do need to do a fair amount of of discovery 
uh, an analysis up front before you even continue. Um, and, and, and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like waterfall analysis, agile delivery, right? Where you, you still have to kind of have a 60% sure version of what you're building beforehand. Mm-hmm. You get all that stuff in there as work items, and then you can start your agile delivery, uh, which is very highly iterative, allowing things to change, allowing priorities to change, and, and following the flow of value. Because I guarantee you, when you start the project, you have a vision of what real uh, value is, and so does your customer. By the end of it, it's totally different. Right. That feels like a tactic for breaking people who are waterfall fixated. Yeah, okay, I'm going to do all this process loading up front, but then I'm going to ship you bills every two weeks and see if you don't want to change them. Yeah. <laughs> That's mean. Well, it, and it shows the maturity that you have. Like, So you could have a, a dev organization that's fairly mature, and what I call mature... A mature dev organization leans much more towards agility because they understand that you can really only control two sides of the triangle, right? Right. The triangle being a mixture of schedule, cost, and functionality. The reality is, is if you tell us you have to do, you know, build an app in six months and you have a team of six people, but you have a variable amount of functionality, you'll be successful, right? As long as you follow the, the flow of value and make trade-off decisions based on those constraints. It's organizations that really think that they can control all three sides of, of those, and that's in their best interest. Reality is it's not in their best interest. Um, it, it, it's, it's tempting to do so, and a lot of contracts become structured in that way to try to control all three sides. But then what right. you end up doing is controlling the contract and managing the contract and change control of the contract versus actually delivering value. And you know what? There's tons of projects that still do that. Um, um, but kind of at the end of it, they go, geez, you know what? If we would have just been a bit more agile than waterfall. We would have been fine. Would have been fine. <laughs> but it's also that getting rid of that big front load that we spend so much time gathering requirements. That are likely going to be wrong. Yeah, that are going to change before we're finished. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's funny because I don't, I don't know, Richard, I don't know if you were in the room years and years ago, we got that semi-private engagement with Bill Gates. We're sitting in that room, and and it was all just Canadian influencers at the time. And he kind right. of came in with, with his tablet, and uh, he said one really profound thing, um, that the only thing that you can expect is change. That really kind of resonated with me. I was like, you know what? That is so absolutely correct. That is the only constant in the universe, which is change. And if you embrace it, I think you have a better model for you know, embracing reality. So the other thing that I want to bring up is that the worst thing possible um, on a dev project is being in one reality and pretending you're in another. And in Waterfall, it's very easy to do. Uh, there's these isolation layers, and you don't necessarily have a strong sense of how well you're going to do, because everything culminates at the end, right? You have right. these major phases, which culminates in hope and glory, you know, six months down the road. What Agile does is it exposes the real reality much quicker. And, you know, we talk about team system a lot, but when you have team system as a way of tracking things and giving you that spider web of things and how they're interconnected, you can truly get a sense of what that reality is. When you're trending out work, when you're understanding that, hey, you know, that developer hasn't checked in anything for three weeks. Right. That's bad, right? We can look at these trends um, and try to zone in on them much quicker than we would if we were just in a traditional waterfall approach. My threshold is two days. Yeah. By the second day, if he hasn't checked anything in, it's time to go talk to see how things are yeah. doing. It's really a question of how long you're going to let him thrash. I, the, by the counterpoint to that being... A happy, productive developer checks in every day. Yeah. Well, and there's also that um, feel-good mechanism. I don't know about you guys, but when you go home at the end of the day, you really want to feel like you've accomplished something, right? Yes. And as a developer, if you're not getting that feedback, you don't, I don't for me personally, I don't feel accomplished. When you're doing something and you're checking it in, and then all of your unit tests are passed, and that automated build comes back and then you get the alert that says the build was successful yeah man i've done stuff today there it is and it's automatically linking to my work items that i didn't have to do anything to tell it about because my check-in was linked to my work items and so i can show hey this is what my build did um it's it's quite gratifying 
You don't actually have to run around the office cheering. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> it's funny because you can set up alerts on TFS that come to your email. And I have an alert where any work item changes, I get an alert. Any bill right. changes, I get an alert, right? So I, I kind of have this heartbeat of what's happening on my team. And there's a whole rich API behind this. And we, we built the, uh, the Teleric uh, dashboard. Uh, that sits on top of Team System that gives you that heartbeat of your project, you know, and it's live data, and we can show trending of builds and trending of what, you know, the work that needs to get done and who's doing what and how, what percentage of completion they're done and on, on their work, um, code coverage statistics. All of this is live, rich data that they're getting from the system that they didn't really have to put a lot of work to get, um, you know, so, and this tool is free, and it sits right on top of Team System. The value you get from that is just phenomenal. So this is the, the project dashboard you can download from Telerik. Yeah, exactly. Totally a free product that we've been using at Imagine It for, for some time because we found it valuable to, again, get a sense of reality. And we're getting that reality not with fabricated status reports by really just picking up on the activity inside a team system and drawing from that activity to bring out a sense of really what's happening on my team. And there's been a few cases where we've just walked past that dashboard and we went, hey, that's not right. I need to go talk to, to that guy right there. And sure enough, you know, we, we, we uncover things that would have caused us a lot of pain. Well, it's like, you know, recognizing the idea that check-ins equals happiness. You could pretty much put a <laughs> smiley face and a sad face on each developer based on their check-in rate. Yeah. Well, even things like breaking bills, right? What we do on the dashboard is if you break a build, the, the dashboard makes a smashing noise <laughs> and your, your, face, your face gets put up there. On the, uh. And that's the biggest, most prominent aspect of the dashboard is your face. And it doesn't go away until someone else breaks the These dashboard. These are such rudimentary Pavlovian manipulation techniques. I'm surprised anyone would want to work for you, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get, tell you what. They make sure that their check-ins work, and, and yeah. that's really all that matters. This is this is incentive. It's basic that's humiliation, you know, uh, motivation by humiliation. There you go. That's right. Well, isn't there three types of motivation? There's social, there's moral, and then there's uh, um, financial. And I think the social motivation was the most powerful one of them all, so this works. Yeah, you forget beer. Oh. <laughs> is that social or financial? I'm I don't know. I'm not sure. The inverse of both, I think. <laughs> nice. Yeah, the lack of social motivation. Does it still make sense to use Team System if you're the only developer working on a project? That's a real tough one. Um, you know what? Up until 2010, I would have to have said no. Because really? the cost of entry. Um, the cost of entry, I'd have had to spend 3000 bucks for a Team System license and another 500 bucks for a cow. If I'm the only dev now, all I need to buy is uh, is team a team foundation server, which is five hundred bucks, and away I go. Right. So I would have to say that since now I'm so addicted, you know, to 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 the feedback it provides you, I think that single individuals would probably look towards this ver uh, versus going and getting Visual Source Safe, which really wasn't free when you looked at it. Um, in replacement for it because they're going to get that extra value. The cost of entry is just so low with 2010. Right. I think that's a show. That's a show. Joel, thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And this is a never-ending topic of interest for us. That's awesome. Well, thanks for having me again, guys. It's always a pleasure for me to uh, vote my, uh, my philosophy to the world. Awesome. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, 
at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.